Last week, we saw God's invisible hand of providence guiding Saul to Samuel. This week, we are going to consider Samuel's anointment, excuse me, uh, we're going to consider Saul's anointment by Samuel to be king over Israel, which is illustrative of God's enablement of Saul to be king. Now, there's a great deal to be learned from this anointing. There are three significant events that are intertwined in our passage, and so best understood in relationship to each other. They should not be considered in isolation. That's why we're looking at such a large portion of scripture this morning. The three events are these. First is Samuel's anointing Saul as king over Israel. Second are the signs that are associated with Saul's anointing as king. And then third is the spiritual transformation that takes place in Saul's life in association with Saul's being anointed as king. So our theme this morning is that God establishes and empowers Saul to be king over Israel. The first event that we're going to consider is that Saul is anointed by Samuel to be king at the Lord's command. God commands Samuel to anoint Saul as king over Israel. If you look at verse 16, it states, About this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Now the following verses, verses 17 through 26, are leading up to this anointing of Saul to be king over Israel. Now, while there's much to be considered in these verses, I'm referring to them simply as events leading up to the anointing of Saul as king. I'm not going to be treating them in any detail due to time and constraints as we have a lengthy and complex portion of scripture to consider this morning. The focal point of the passage is on Samuel's anointing of Saul. So now Samuel anoints Saul to be king in private. This is for Saul's benefit alone. Notice first Samuel tells Saul to send his servant on before him in verse 27. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here for yourself for a while. For what Paul, for what Samuel is about to say is to be held in confidence. What he is about to say is for Saul's ears alone. And Saul does keep that confidence as illustrated by the conversation that he has with his uncle in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 4 to 16. Once they have stopped and Samuel starts relating to uh, Saul, Samuel then communicates to Saul what God has revealed to him. Notice verse 27. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, and now these words that I make, make known to you, the word of God, the word of God. So he's going to tell 
Saul what God has told him. Then Saul is anointed with oil in a symbolic manner, representing the true anointing of Saul by the Holy Spirit. So first, Samuel symbolically anoints Saul with oil, verse 1 of chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him. Again, this is a symbolic anointing of Saul in keeping with his true anointing by the Spirit of God. Notice the anointing with oil was symbolic of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to accomplish that for which Saul had been chosen. Verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? That's the true anointment. That's the spiritual anointment, if you will. You see, the significance of this ceremony, ceremonial anointing is to represent the work of the Holy Spirit in calling and enabling an individual to accomplish the work for which they have been chosen. Isaiah 61.1 makes that more clear, of which, referring to Jesus, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So we need to realize that this symbolic anointing is representative of what the Spirit of God is going to be doing in the life of Saul. Now we have the signs associated with Saul's being anointed as king. A key element in this section is the repeated references to the events that will take place as being signs. If you notice at the end of verse 1, it says, and this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his inheritance. Again, verse 7. Now, when these signs meet you. And again, verse 9. When he turned back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. So we are to look at these prophetic utterances as a sign. Now a sign serves two purposes in the scriptures. The first reason that a sign is given is to confirm or authenticate a message is coming from God. Samuel's word is true as evidenced by the signs that are given. These signs are all going to come to the pass. They're all going to be fulfilled. They are to authenticate that when Samuel speaks, he indeed speaks for God. Secondly, a sign serves to illustrate or enlarge upon a message that's declared in a visual manner. God says through Samuel that God would be with him in verse 7. When these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, that God is enabling and equipping Saul for the kingship. The emphasis is on the spiritual equipping of Saul to do the work of a king. So now we have this anointing followed with these three signs. <clears throat> Up until this point, Saul has been clueless about God's will to make Saul king and also about God's working sovereignly to bring him to Samuel. 
He thinks that he's just been out looking for donkeys, and the reason that he came to Samuel in the first place was to find out where these donkeys are. He doesn't know that God's invisible sovereign hand is leading him to Samuel in order for Samuel to establish him to be king. He did not perceive those events as taking place at God's direction. Remember that the people of Israel have rejected the word of Samuel when he warned them about their obstinate pursuit of seeking an earthly king. Samuel's role of prophet in Israel had been diminished. It had been uh, undermined by the people's unbelief. Therefore, God is going to authenticate this message that comes from Samuel by giving signs so that Saul can know that in fact what Samuel says indeed is coming from God, that this is God's word. And further, that Saul is truly anointed by the Holy Spirit and will be equipped to be king over Israel. What Samuel is doing in anointing Saul, God had told him to do. <clears throat> in 1 Samuel 9, 16, it says, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him to be king over uh, prince over the uh, people of Israel. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over the, his people Israel? Subsequent to anointing Saul, uh, Samuel told him in advance about three things that would happen to him on his way back home, which are given as signs. So let's look at the signs. The first sign is that he would meet two men by Rachel's tomb at Zelah, who would tell him that the donkeys he had been looking for had been found, and that now his father was more worried about him than about the donkeys. Verse 2. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin of Zelah. And you, they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? The second sign is that at the great tree of Tabor, he would three, meet three men who were on their way to sacrifice at Bethel, and they would offer him two loaves of bread, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. And they shall greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. Now what's notable about these two signs is their detail. First, where the sign is to take place. Then secondly, a description of what is to take place. And then thirdly, what is said precisely. Again, this was given to authenticate, to demonstrate that Samuel's a true prophet. That what he says comes to pass that Samuel's word was true and trustworthy. 
It is precisely because these signs are so specific that they are significant. They are not bland generalizations like the little quips from a fortune cookie. They are detailed. Two men meet you at a precise location near Rachel's grave with a very particular message, your donkeys are found. Or three men come upon you at the Oak of Tabor, one having three goats, one with three loaves of bread, one with a skin of wine, and the bread man gives you two of his loaves. All of this to demonstrate the fact that Samuel knows precisely what is going to be taking place, what is going to be said, what these people are doing, what they look like, what they have on them, all of this precise information. It's not like the horoscope that you read in the newspaper that is so generalized that anything fulfills the prophecy, like you are going to meet an interesting person this week. Uh, doesn't say very much. These are precise. They are signs to demonstrate the truthfulness of what Samuel has to say. And of course, these signs come to pass. Verse 9. When he had turned back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and now these words, and all these signs came to pass that day. So all three signs are going to be fulfilled. That's the purpose of these signs, to demonstrate the truthfulness of what Samuel has to say. But more than that, these signs should signify to Saul that Samuel is God's prophet and his words are to be followed. Verse 8. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now, this is a very curious verse, if you study this passage very carefully. And why it is a curious verse is because it's speaking of an event that is three years into the future. This is not immediate to the context. It is three years into the future. And there are many commentators that take the position that this is a glitch. This is a a uh, verse of scripture that's placed in the wrong place. Uh, but I submit to you that this is not a glitch, this is not a verse of scripture that's placed in the wrong place, but rather it's a foreshadowing of a very significant and important event. It provides us insight into Saul's future disobedience. Samuel's words will not be heeded. If you turn with me to chapter 13, in chapter 13, verse 1, it gives us the time frame. Saul lived for one year. Now that's talking about the time from which he's anointed to the time that he is publicly established as king over Israel. So there's a year from the time that he's anointed as king until he's publicly uh, empowered as king. And then became king, I'm at 1 Samuel 13, 1, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel. Now comes the event described in 1 Samuel 10, 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. 
You see, this is what is said in 1 Samuel 10, verse 8. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. So this is going to be talking about his disobedience. So you put it into context. Here it is of of the prophet Samuel giving these three signs to Saul that what he has said is true and that his words should be heeded. I know I'm going awfully fast, but there's so much material here, and then I'll give you the application at the end and it'll come clear, I hope. The third sign is the most significant sign. We know that for it's the only sign that's given in detail with regard to its fulfillment. The first two signs were told what they are and then it simply said they all come to pass. This third sign is described and then its fulfillment is also described. The third sign is with respect to the Holy Spirit. At Gibeah, there was a Philistine garrison and he would meet a company of prophets who were prophesying to the accompaniment of musical instruments. And when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, he would join with them in prophesying. So notice 1 Samuel 10, verses 5 and 6. After that, you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. So I said, only this third uh, sign is described in respect to its fulfillment. So notice verse 10. Here's the fulfillment. Now when they came to Gibeah, Behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? The change that had taken place in Saul was noticeable. It says in verse 11, and when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, they could visually see a transformation that had taken place in Saul. And it raises the question, what has come over the man of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? So it engenders the question, what happened to Saul? He's not the same Saul that we have known. Then the question is, is he also a prophet? See, he one of those. Which brings us to the third discussion, and which is really the core of this whole section. And that is, 
What brought about the transformation that takes place in the life of Saul? What is happening here? So the third element of this passage is the spiritual transformation that takes place in association with Saul's being anointed as king. God changes Saul. In order for Saul to be king, Saul needed to undergo some changes. There had to be some differences. He was not equipped. He was not ready. He was not fit to be king over Israel. So the change that would take place is noticeable. It was observable. It was, a, it was spiritual. So the people ask, what has happened? And that's what we want to focus on this morning. What has happened? What took place in the life of Saul? Well, answer two things. First, God gave Saul another heart. Look at verse 9. 1 Samuel 10, verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. So now we have to ask the question, what does that mean? What does that teach us, that God gave him another heart? I believe that this, refer, this refers to Saul's conversion. I believe that this is a statement that at this point he's regenerate. We want to use New Testament language. He's born again. He's brought into a new relationship with God. God gives him another heart. Now, in full disclosure, there are many good commentators that do not understand this verse as speaking about Paul's, excuse me, Saul's conversion. But we have to ask ourselves the question, If it isn't referring to his conversion, what is it referring to? What does another heart mean? And uh, I have not seen any suitable answers to that question. Certainly nothing that uh, is substantiated from the scriptures. So, we ask the question again. What does it mean that he's been given another heart? Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, speaks of when God gives a person another heart. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, it reads as follows. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit will I put upon you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and you will have a heart of flesh. Uh, You will have this new heart. A heart not of stone, but a heart of flesh. So we have to ask the question, is this what happened to Saul a true spiritual confirmation. Well, here's the kicker. The next verse in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27 says this. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It is precisely because of Saul's disobedience to God that a number of commentators do not think that Saul was regenerate. 
They say, how can this be a converted individual for Saul is going to sin against God? And we already pointed out to you that in verse 8, it's already hinted at that you're supposed to wait for me at Gilgal, and three years later, he's not waiting, and he's running ahead. So what are we to understand concerning uh, Saul's conversion as it relates to his disobedience? Well, one doesn't have to be a great biblical scholar to understand that David also was disobedient to God, repeatedly. Now the the, the important truth for us this morning is that God intends there to be a dramatic change when we come into a relationship with God, there should be a dramatic change. And there are some dramatic changes. And at the same time, there is this tendency to continue into sin. So we must be on the lookout. We must be aware. We must be cautious. Because of his disobedience, Saul is going to be removed from his kingship. He's going to lose the kingship because of his disobedience. Going towards the end of the story, 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 17, reads as follows. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. These are the words of Samuel. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord And did not carry out his fierce anger against Amalek. So Saul is going to lose the kingship. And it's said very clearly that it's going to be taken away from him and given to David. Because he'd been disobedient to God. However, I think it's important to note that Saul does not lose his salvation, if you will. Uh, That that Saul... uh, does not become unconverted. If you listen to the next verse, it says this, Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, this is an appearance of Samuel after Samuel had died. And so when Samuel says that you're going to be with me tomorrow, it's referring to the fact that Saul is going to die. But I believe it's much more than just simply that he's going to die, for it doesn't simply say you're going to die. It says you're going to be with me. Now, in all fairness, we could say, well, to be with him means he's going to die because he's dead. But I think the words are intended to be a comfort, to be a reassurance that you are going to be where I am. And there's no doubt where Samuel is in his relationship with God. There's no doubt as to his personal standing before God. So I think what is going on here is he's saying, you're going to lose the kingdom because of your disobedience. And you're going to die, but you're going to be with me. You're going to be with me. It is a rebuke and a comfort all at the same time. 
Now there is a lot more to be said on these matters than what I have time for this morning. And I'm well aware of some of the issues that we're going to be facing. Among them, there's a very interesting passage of an evil spirit that is going to be coming upon Saul. So what do we do that as we think about a converted person, etc.? Well, we'll get there, and I will address it, and uh, we'll be thinking, I'm aware of the issues. But I'm telling you up front that this is the way I'm approaching Saul's life. I believe that he is a converted individual, but he's going to be a person that has a number of failings and uh, is disobedient to God. But it's important that you understand how I'm approaching this text because it's going to affect the applications. So the first thing we're told is that he will be given another heart. The second thing that we're told about Saul is that he will become another man. If you look at verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and be turned into another man. Because the new heart that is to be given, and the turning into another man, is described as taking place at two different times, I think it's fair to assume that it's not describing the same event. Now there's certainly similarities. But they don't happen at the same time, therefore it's not the same event. He's got a new heart, and then he's turned into another man. I believe the first, where it says that he received a new heart, is speaking about conversion. That's when he's born again. The second, when he becomes another man, is the Holy Spirit's empowerment for service. The Holy Spirit's empowerment for service. So what we have in this complex passage is the following. Here's a summation of where we've come so far. First, God has chosen Saul to be king over Israel, and Samuel symbolically anoints Saul with oil, representing God's blessing and empowerment of Saul to be king over Israel. Secondly, to confirm in Saul's mind that God indeed has chosen him, that Samuel's words are true, and that God will indeed help Saul, God gives him three signs. The first two signs are more directed at demonstrating the truthfulness of Samuel's word and confirmation that he's indeed a prophet who speaks for God. Thus, Samuel's words are true and are to be followed. The third sign is given to demonstrate that the Lord indeed is with Saul and will spiritually transform him and empower him to be the king over Israel. That's that third sign. The Spirit will rush upon you and you will prophesy. And then lastly, a description of the transformation that takes place in the life of Saul. He is given a new heart. He becomes another man. Well, all of that as background to these takeaways. These are the lessons that I think are the most significant for us to understand in this passage. So first, the outstanding physical characteristics of Saul 
are not sufficient to accomplish what God has for Saul to do as king. He needs a spiritual transformation. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, Saul is depicted as a person, in verse 2, who is a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. We find in verse 1 that he is rich. We find that those are the characteristics that the people of Israel admired the most, that they would be the most impressed with. He had what it took to be king. Look at him. This passage teaches us that that wasn't adequate, <laughs> that that wasn't good enough, uh, that it isn't just how tall he was and how strong he was and how rich he was. There was an issue about his heart, about his character, about his relationship with God. He needed a spiritual transformation. In like manner, we need to learn not to rely upon our own strength or innate abilities to do the work of God that God has given to us to do. This is true no matter how outstanding our abilities or talents are. No matter how wise we are, we're not wise enough. No matter how strong we are, we're not strong enough. No matter how resilient we are, we're not resilient enough. Our own natural abilities are not sufficient for us to be able to do what God actually wants us to do. And the tendency is, the more of these natural abilities that we possess, the more likely we are not to rely upon God. The more we are to trust in ourselves. The more we have confidence in ourselves and fail to recognize our weakness. We need the Lord's help. Secondly, God would supply all that Saul needed to be successful as king. That is, God would equip him and enable him for everything that he needed in order to be accomplishing what God wanted him to accomplish. Naming the defeat of the Philistines, the establishment of the nation, of all these things that God had for him. All he needed to do was to rely upon the Lord and trust in his word. So too, all that we need to be successful in life as defined as doing what God would have us to do as his people, he has enabled us to do. God has given us his spirit. We have, if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our savior, a new heart. And not only do we have a new heart, but we are a different person. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new, 1 Corinthians. We are a changed people. And that change is described in the New Testament under such words as a new creation, of being born again, a new creature, a new man. We have the Spirit of God 
at work in us. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers every one of them. So we all have the Spirit of God that has gifted and enabled us to do what God would have us to do. Just as God had a purpose for Saul, that was to be king over Israel, God has a purpose for us. A great passage in Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, is the gift of God. Verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, which most people stop at verses 8 and 9. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before had ordained that we should walk in them. God has a purpose in saving each and every one of us. God has a ministry for us to fulfill. And not only does he have a purpose, but he enables us to do it. He has given us all that we need to accomplish his purpose. That which we need is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. We need him to be with us. And the promise is, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So says the book of Hebrews. Thirdly, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is not separate from the need of being submissive to the Word of God. In uh, the book of Ephesians, it says, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking and singing to yourselves in hymns and songs and spiritual songs, singing so make melody in your heart unto the Lord. Saul is going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, he's going to become a new person. He will even prophesy. The Lord will direct and lead him. However, that leading and direction must be understood in the light of God's word. God will not lead Saul contrary to God's word. Now, as we think about Saul, the way in which God is going to lead Saul through his word is Samuel. God is going to speak to Samuel. And Samuel is going to instruct Saul as to what he is to do. In fact, in verse 8, he is instructed to listen to Samuel. Unfortunately, Saul, on a number of occasions, does not. On some occasions, he does. On other occasions, he does not. And of course, it's going to be to his downfall. It's going to be to the derelict of his duty. It's going to be to an undermining of the purpose for which God had made him king. Though he is a spiritual man, and though he has spiritual insight, even to the point of prophesying, he should never rely upon that gift to the detriment or to the avoidance of submitting to Samuel's word and instruction. Well, for us, it's not Samuel, it's the Bible. We have God's revealed word. 
And just like Samuel, excuse me, just like Saul would depart from Samuel's instruction, we have to be ever mindful of not departing from God's word, from the Bible's instruction. Just as God would give spiritual discernment to Saul, God gives spiritual discernment to us. We have the ability to comprehend the truth of God. But we must never think that that ability would in any way give us the authority or the right to contradict the word of God. God will never lead us to violate his word. God will never lead us in a way that contradicts what he reveals in his word. When we believe that, we are self-deceived. When we believe that, we have become arrogant. We have put ourselves as an authority above God's word rather than submitting to God's word. So when Saul refused to follow Samuel, so too we may refuse at times to follow God's word. But it's important for us to understand here that at the heart of this refusal is rebellion. I don't want to get too far into the chapters that are before us. There are a lot of nifty chapters that we're going to be looking at. Uh, and uh, a very important verse uh, that uh, talks about rebellion as being the sin of witchcraft. And I'll unpack that uh, to some length. But be it said this morning, may we understand that the real heart issue is not ignorance. It's not that we don't know what God's word says. But at times, we don't want to do what God's word says. And at those times, we can never have the audacity to say, I'm following God's leading. I'm doing what God would have me to do. God has led me to this. God has brought me to this decision. God is at work that I do that. That is false. God will never lead you in contradiction to his word. At that point, that's not the spirit of God at work. That's our heart. That's our mind. That's our fleshly desires at work. And then fourthly, Saul is going to come up short in all that God expects of him. This is a result of his disobedience. In fact, as we've alluded to, Saul is going to lose the kingship eventually because of his disobedience. And he's not going to bring about the full deliverance from the Philistines that God had intended for Saul because of his disobedience. And that's going to be transferred over to David, and David's going to do it. So what are we to learn? Well, that is that we should fear that we may not accomplish all that God would have us to do. We need to be afraid that we'd fall short. 
in fulfilling God's purpose in our lives. That as a result of our disobedience, our effectiveness would be cut short. We might be removed from opportunities of service. No longer able to teach Sunday school. No longer being able to be a pastor. No longer able to function in certain realms and ways because of our disobedience, because of our sin. Always remembering that God has given us everything we need to live a life of holiness and godliness before him. Saul was fully equipped. But he failed. But he failed. We are fully equipped. And if we fail, we can't blame it on God. We can't say, well, I was too weak. We have the strength. We can't say, I wasn't led. We have the word of God. May we guard our hearts and minds. May we submit ourselves to the word of God so that we accomplish all that God would have for us. That at the end of the day, we can hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. At the end of all this, Saul is saved. But God is displeased. And the kingdom is removed. And Israel suffers for it. But he's equipped. We too are equipped. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Guard our hearts. Keep us, Lord. I thank you for all that you have given to us. Uh, Lord, you have enabled us. You have empowered us. You have given us your spirit. You've given us a new heart. You've turned us into a new person. But Lord, that doesn't mean that we are going to be free from temptation. And Lord, sometimes the very abilities and gifts that you give us, we turn on their head and we rely more upon our own abilities and talents and gifts and even what you have spiritually done in us to the point where we don't rely upon you any longer, we don't pray, we don't ask for your assistance, and we don't submit to your word. And sometimes we even have the audacity to say that to go against your word is your leading and direction in our lives. Lord, uh, don't cut us short in our effectiveness. I, I pray, Lord, that we would accomplish all that you would have for us. And I pray that we would live a life that is pleasing and glorifying to you until the very end, until we enter in your presence, we'll, we'll have been striving to do that which is pleasing and glorious in your sight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.